Christian Pride Cat Pride. Well, hey, we moved to the next level. Speaking of Pride, this episode is brought to you by Marriage Supply, my friends. If you want to have a poke and prod your uh, lover a little bit and explore a little bit more and have fun and go to our website, no porn ever on our website. Uh, we sure would appreciate it. Uh, sponsoring us and sponsoring Marriage Supply is one and the same. And so we sure do appreciate your sponsorship, your patronage. All that good stuff. Uh, so, welcome to the podcast, Matt. How you doing? Good, just podcasting. Um, I uh, I got a message about marriage supply. Somebody's asking me, do we still have those boxes? Do we still got boxes? We sure do. Uh, we have two right now, and well, actually, I have written out a list of twenty four different subscription boxes. And maybe uh, I don't even know if they'll be subscriptions. They might just be individual boxes. But we've created a few different ones. But uh, yes, you can get two boxes right now. Massage box, it's the massage and more box, and then the intro to toys box. Cool. Marysupply.com. Love it. Toby, do y'all have a stroller? Do your family use a stroller? I know no. you don't have any little kids anymore, but how long did you use the stroller? Well, I this is a very sensitive subject. It is. Because I'm... I hate the strollers, and I think they're really overpriced for what they are. And you have to, <laughs> and you have to get the one that's good. You know what I'm well, saying? Like, it, like it, well, safety the, status. I know. If you, it, if you love your kids, status. Of course you, yeah, it's definitely a status thing. I mean, but, it's ridiculous you know. the status thing. It's oh, like, yeah. I mean, you, it's like having a Mercedes or something instead of a Hyundai. Or what the hell are we what? talking about? It's, yeah, the Hyundai's it's, just as good. It's better. <laughs> More is everything. Everybody knows when you get a Mercedes, though, that that's just about you and your ego, or what you could say. Say a safety or you like German right. engineering, but we know why you got the bins. But the stroller, you get to tell yourself how much you care about your kid and all. <laughs> uh, <you know? laughs> I've always hated them. We got one that I thought was overpriced that looked cool and it had some name. I don't know. It's probably one that everybody, it seemed like one that people had. And so we got the it. The Bob. I'm, yes. That was yeah, it. The They're yep. above that now, though. I mean, especially here in Seattle. That Bob the, is like not even. The Bob's uh, not even that good anymore? It's not even up there, no. Oh, my God. So Yeah, but, you know, I've always hated strollers since. It's one of those words that I absolutely hate. And I've, yeah. Since I was a little kid, I've always despised it. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on why, but it's this uh, stroller. Like, you're taking a stroll. It's right. not something – I don't stroll. No, and if you, I'm kid, if I'm a kid, I don't even want to stroll. I want to play or do something. Right. It's just like it's so patronizing of a thing. Uh, it just sounds like such a weak nothing. And yep. we have a nice one, and <laughs> a nice one. And I always don't want to use it because yeah. I'm like a stroll. She'll say, 
we should take the stroller. Like if we're going somewhere, like get yeah. it, load it in the car. I hate it in that way. Um, but I rationalized that to, in order to pay for it, I figured out how many times we had to use it. To, so it costed like, at first it cost like, <laughs> if you use it this many times, it costs you $10 a use. If you got to get, you, you got to use it enough a, times. You did a cost analysis yeah, of your yeah. stroller. <laughs> I just same with the espresso machine. I know how many we had to make to make it worth paying those $400 for the machine or whatever. Right. So that's wow. how I think, you know. So that's this, pretty cool. Over time, we have gotten, I know we had some need for a stroller and now We've really used it with a couple of kids, and I know we've basically gotten the thing down to a reasonable cost, but I still hate the stroller. And I, every time Bridget says, should we take the stroller? I'm like, I don't want to get it. I don't want to carry right. it. And I don't want to stroll. When I hear it, I go, no, I don't want to stroller. I'll just, we'll just go. Right. And then she'll say, yeah, but, you know. And it's like, the kids don't even want to ride in it. And she said, but you can put all, you know, stuff put in it. Put everything in it, man. And when, she, when we take it, it always comes in handy. Because right. it's got a huge utility function to it. Right. And so I said, you know what we got to do? Maybe the kids don't ride it, but we're always putting the bags in it, whatever it is. So it really is useful. Right. I get it. And I'm with it. But we can't call it a stroller anymore. It's a utility cart is what I call it. Oh, that's kind of good. So if they want to yeah. take, you want to take the utility cart? Now I'm listening because right. I'm thinking how are we going to use it or whatever. So right. it's just the family utility cart is what the stroller needs to be renamed to. Or the fuck. F-U-C. Right. So you just say, <laughs> do you want to take the fuck or not? It's the family utility cart. Family utility cart. Yes. Get the fuck. No more stroller. We got a nice Get family utility. Get the fuck utility. out. Get the fuck yes. out. We're leaving. <laughs> That's right. We got a nice fuck. We got a real expensive one. It's nice, and we use that thing. Family utility cart. Problem solved. Now, we got it down to under under a dollar per use now. We've used it so many times. Wow. My, that might be a thousand uses, by the way, or something like that. I don't really remember exactly yeah. what the calculation was, but wow. You know. Man, I haven't thought about a stroller in forever. <laughs> Thank God. I, I mean, I'm telling you, it is crazy. Like even Devin, you know, we live here in Champaign near Devin, and Remy, their, their kid is what, maybe two? Something like that. But it is still, we can't, Jess and I can't, it's almost like we can't understand it. It's like cute, neat, fun to be around. Thank God, leaving. Mm-hmm. Like we could, if we if it was our kid, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't <laughs> mentally, we can't mentally. And and I'm this is what's really sad. It has always shocked me that my parents have seemingly no clue about how to deal with a kid. Like the way they deal with my kids is like the worst thing you could ever do. You know what I mean? Definitely mm-hmm. as much sweets and candy and presents and stuff as you can when they're around them, and then completely ignore them and talk to the adults. And just let them do whatever, and you're like, "What? You you had to watch them. They're gonna do stuff. I mean, what 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 are you doing they, here, they Paul? Paul? Pur- They've got into some mode at some point where they purged a lot of useful information they I'm must at. have had. Yes, because that's there's what I'm no saying. way they were that dumb when they had kids. I mean, I I don't think, but no. now they're really dumb. I'm telling you, I know what it is. What having a kid is so horrific and hard and exhausting. You, you will lose parts of you. You lose parts of your brain, yeah. and there is some. Yeah, you have to. Not remember it. You block it you don't, out. Yeah. You don't. You do not want to go back to <laughs> what it's really right. like having to watch and chase a kid around. Yeah, it or requires d- a vigilance that's painful, right? Oh, exhausting. Yeah. yeah. You, I mean, you get and no. You block there that is part no of you. yourself out. Yeah. That whole yeah. that whole time there is no I you. Agree. You're just doing, not being, almost. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, seriously, till about probably five or six, you're just yep. you know you're just doing. You are not yes. being. I mean, it is crazy. When I go that's back and watch exactly videos, right. I go back. I go back and watch videos, and I'm like, that happened. 
Oh my yep. God, they sounded like I'm, I feel like I'm already forgetting it. So I know by the time I'm sixty or seventy, my kids have grandkids. If I'm still here, Lord, please, uh, I they'd have know to get all to the way back into that long term mindset, right? And they could maybe, but yeah, the, yeah, I think you're right. It's just the neural configuration of the type of person you were is not there anymore. It's like if you are exercised and you have all these associations, you chew gum when you take tests, it's like all yeah. that stuff. Like it's either, it's like a Rubik's Cube. Like it corresponds yeah. to who you are at a time in some way. Yeah. The, you know what the craziest thing about two-year-olds is that I realized Cosmo's birthday is uh, next week. So he's about to be two. And it's a hilarious time to be two because the, his whole first year was a whatever, whatever year and then the pandemic year. Now, right. that puts a hyper hyper extreme lens on something that is interesting to look back on. I remember talking on this podcast, but four or five years ago when I was, when we first had, when I had Georgia and kids and stuff like that. And there was all that debate, uh, back in those days about screen time. Should, should a kid be allowed oh, to screen? Totally. Right. And I mean, I can't, <laughs> can and I, of course I was absurd then and people thought I was crazy. So that's one area where you I probably, you can't let the kids have so much can't screen have time. Screen, like, okay, but here it is. Can you imagine anybody that has a kid that's about to turn two right now? Can you imagine if on their second birthday you said, Oh, it's time to finally let him see what a TV screen is like? Oh, I know. Oh, my. <laughs> like, that's as impossible. If like, oh, this is going to be so exciting. We've never exposed him to a, a phone or a TV screen before. He's two now and it's, it's safe. Can you imagine, like, if my son had not seen a screen yet, <laughs> I know, and that was the that's what people were saying. I know, like oh, I know. no screens before too, and you say, yeah, well, I mean, they're like, yeah. and then immediately you say, yeah, but are you sure? They go, well, too much of it, it could be bad, right? So it's like you just immediately jump off the. I mean, obviously, it's just, and they don't, and continually it mounts that comparative social media is bad for all people, including adults. And you don't listen to that at all. Right. No, zero. It's terrible. It, ca it causes a teenager to kill themselves, and it ruins the world of adults. 100%. But not the pixels. <laughs> <laughs> it's not pixels and, and luminescence that's, that's hurting anybody, is it? That's a good point. That's what, I still yell this at my daughter. Weird. I still, because my dad yelled at me, my mom yelled at me, I still yell at our youngest, get back from that TV! You don't have to sit that close. It but, never got but anybody. It doesn't matter. It never did anything right. to anybody since your grandparents were yelling at you when you were five. Yeah, you're right. It, you're right. It's not the TV. It's the stuff. That, you know, it's the information that is right. going into your brain. I, I yeah. see. But it's also hilarious how quickly everybody. It's so the the uh, fake guilt that all the parents have. I, you know, Shoot. I, every single person. I every single parent I've talked to. I probably let them watch a little too much. They on the iPad again. You know, I'm just like, what are you going to do? When you tell people they can't go outside for a year, yeah. what in the hell are they supposed to do? I mean, yeah. how, how often can you send them to their room to work, play with Legos? Or yeah, what? I mean, the, you know I, mean, what I mean, their future lives are screening beyond, though. Like, well, you know Oh, that. you're right. Yeah, yeah. So what is even, I mean. I know. I, I'm being a bit obnoxious, and I do right. understand that hyper-stimulation is an issue you know what I'm saying? Like, I, yeah, sure. It, I'm sure it does something to your brain. The fact that they lock onto a screen at any age is like it's a hyper stimulating thing. So I'm sure that ha I know for sure it has effects. But how yes. they're managed and how that's done is obviously the thing. Not 
uh, screens are <laughs> screens right. are bad tilted. It, I just think, uh, especially in the pandemic year, so maybe that sped it up, or maybe we've done a lot of damage. But if you didn't let them have the screen, it, it'd be even crazier. Like they, like they, Cosmo has learned a lot about trucks and machines and trains and the world from what, really looking at those YouTube videos of things in the world. Right. It's he looks at the world because he's very curious what the fuck is out there. Right. No. So I, I let him know. No, I let him follow his interests yeah. in such a in that way, even I though mean, he's one. I mean, most of most, I mean, I'd say ninety percent of my kids' interactions with other people are, are online. Like you've been, you've been predicting that for a while, and then also my kids, I want to give them more credit. They are better equipped to potentially handle mm. the internet more than me. Now they are susceptible to bullying and not understanding the people of the internet, but the actual website no live interaction person they understand that stuff more quickly like ruby uh she told me uh you know dad will you play that song centuries by fallout boys she said <laughs> and, and i said well you know i actually toured with them well she said you you did oh my gosh she said well i don't you know and then i played them uh what's that sugar we're going down. she didn't know that song at all wow. she said that sounds like your band i said well <laughs> i said well maybe i said we were kind of in that scene you know and uh and she said uh, and then one that century song, whatever plays, she said, Dad, don't worry. That song, they, they bleeped out that word, but it's not a cuss word. She said, I went online and, and figured out that, that this is what it actually says here. So just to let me know, she shouldn't get in trouble for listening to two adult a song or Yikes. something. But uh, she figured all that out on her own. Like she knew, should I listen to this? Let me do some research on it. I'll go here. I, I fi- I'll figure out how to find out the lyrics and what they mean and what they say, and then I'll be able to tell my dad the information that he yeah, probably wants. That's too, I was like, that's two level thinking for sure. That's right. good. That's totally. like that's good. You got to you know. And they I mean they're already two screeners. They are two screeners oh. no matter what. They'll play Roblox on the computer and then there's a YouTube playing on their phone or something like that. I'm like, well, I I mean I I try to limit it. I, we are adding way more sports and events and stuff like that to get them outside to try and balance it a little bit, but you're right. It's it's not much you can do to stop it, so. Yeah, the uh the two screeners the way to go. I mean, like uh that that's something that I understand even more after we did the I'm only man encore thing where it's like you want to have your phone and do the chat and then right. be watching something maybe on the big screen with the sound and you still of course need the device to be interactive. That's how you're in the room with people on your device. Right. And you don't want that on the screen. You want it right here. Yeah. Just like Georgia watched the movie with her friend. I said, Do you want to put her a picture in picture on the screen? She's like, No. Just hold the f- just right. talk, watch the movie. Hold, right. Look at my friends right here, and the movie's over there. Yeah, no. I mean, that makes tons of sense. It so. does. They understand the functionality just more quickly in every single way. And speaking so. of that, we have a week's end encore. Is oh, Friday. Yeah. It's Friday. Right. So day after tomorrow, this is yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, we're doing this episode today. comes out today. Two days from now is the week's end encore Friday, whatever calendar date that is. So that's for Emeryland. So anybody yeah. that's in Emeryland, uh, you can join today if you want to. And uh, if you, you missed it, yeah, this is a great. If you missed the weeks in, you could join Emeryland and you can watch the encore with us. It, we're going to run it uh, on the hour every hour for twenty four hours, um, and we'll all jump in there and be there in the chat on the two screener situation. That's right. So that's coming up. Okay, Toby, I am excited for our guest, and I'll talk to you as we see if she's about to join, and you okay. can help introduce her how she found her. I'll tell you where I'm at and what I'm excited to talk about on this interview as we wait on her to join well man i don't know if you notice uh, have, have noticed but our podcast is pretty big so people reach out to us we got publicists we got all kinds of people reaching out to us um it's funny right now uh 
Did you see that movie uh, interview request that the they reached out to us yep. to see if they could come on in this Stephen uh, Baldwin movie? Stephen Baldwin, Billy yep. Baldwin, Donald Faison, the uh, from uh, Scrubs, uh, uh, China Phillips from uh, yeah. you know uh, what was her band uh, Wilson, Wilson Phillips, Phillips yeah, um, and then that pastor comedian guy Thor. They reached out, so I don't know if we're going to have him on or not. Maybe we will, but we had Stephen Baldwin on. That was pretty wild when he was on last yeah, time. Yeah, that was fun. I would yeah. love to have yeah. Billy Baldwin on, and I wonder, would he talk about like his movies? Because I love something like Sliver. You remember that movie, Good Sliver? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, but that's all in the future. Right now, we have Reverend Dr. Angela Gurrell, and uh, only one different letter than my last name, Morell. Oh, interesting. Gurrell. She starts with a G. I start with a N. Two an R's, two L's. I know, but uh, she wrote uh, a great book. Um, called The Gravity of Joy, and it just talks about, uh, well, we'll just get into it with her. It's, it's, it's talking about joy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to derail this interview, but I was watching her give a talk that kind of sets this up where she talks about technology and transhumanism and things oh, like yeah. that. So I want to get that philosophical background. 100%. If you will allow me first before we well, go into the book. Her, she has another book called Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape, yeah, which I yeah. think will line up in that. So she, I mean, she's she's great. I mean, She's going to be yeah. way smarter than us, and uh, so we can ask a lot of questions and learn a lot. Yeah, it looks like she's joining here. But you're right. We get those movie requests, and the publishers reach out. We had uh, – I thought it was really funny. We got that email that there was a wrong address where somebody had been getting our mail from Zondervan pitching us yeah. books for like for like months <laughs> and years, and they said, please stop getting this stuff sent to my we, house. We, we get nonstop Zondervan books. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, everybody wants us because we're prom- – uh, what are we pro- – uh, prominent uh, deconstruction influencers. So. Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. I got Angela coming in here. Let's see if she's All right. hooked up here and can hear us. Okie doke. I see you. Audio, got the dots, got a check. Can you hear us? Hi, I can. How are you? Doing Very good. good. I'm Matt, and this is Toby. We're already yep. rolling here, so if you're good, we'll just keep on uh, cruising through here. Sounds good. Awesome. Excellent. Well, um, I would like to hijack the beginning of the interview before we get to the book, because I was just watching the talk that you gave at uh, Fuller, where you were going through transhumanism and all of that stuff, and... Uh, I just really want to spend time there. That that is really my hyper area of interest. You you, you probably could say I'm a Christian transhumanist. I and less Christian than transhumanist at this point probably. Um I'm a most I'm a fully I mean Jesus is my favorite character and the the be, he, I'm the I'm fully a Jesus centric person and it is him and his values that I would hope we take into and encode in transhumanism, if that makes sense. That's kind of how I look at the landscape. But I, I, I think some of the terminology and just the background of the uh, philosophy there, if we could get into that, I think that would be super helpful. It would be boring, if I, and I don't really know how to say it right, but you were saying it really well and had it really organized. So uh, can, can you try to get us up to speed about that whole landscape or where, the future there in that way, what the movements are competing for the values? Wow. Okay. So you're throwing me for a loop here. I know. I'm sorry, but I just, that's my, it's just so fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I, I gave that lecture at Fuller in November of 2019 for listeners. So I just, you know, so we're a year and a few months out, but um, I did write a chapter for a book called Techno Sapiens, um, something about digital neighbors in a tech, in a networked era. And it came out in November. And so a group of us, 
uh, wrote chapters for that book. So if anybody's really interested in this conversation between, you know, thinking about the Christian religion and transhumanist, I would transhumanism, I would commend that book to you that me and my colleagues put together. Um, because, you know, that's where we go into like a lot of detail or whatever. But um, I think there are places where transhumanists and Christians can absolutely agree, which is why you would, you know, feel moved by their movement. I mean, one of the things is transhumanists are very passionate about um, and utilitarians would also agree a lot with with transhumanists, which is to say um that they're really interested in reducing suffering. I mean, they're not interested in people suffering and they're really interested in prolonging life and giving people uh, you know, as flourishing of a life as possible. So they're interested in healing. I mean, at the end of the day, they wouldn't call, like a lot of transhumanists probably wouldn't use that word, but I mean, they're interested in healing. Yes, I think so. I think that's really similar. Um, can can you go through the underlying philosophies that might would will come out of this? Like you, you, you divide it into utilitarian or Nietzschean as the two main strength. Could you explain? I mean, I don't know that people even know the term transhumanist, to be honest. So if we could start right there, it would be awesome. If you, if you um, yeah. And so, again, I really I'm going to this is coming out. Of, I'm digging this out of my brain. From That's like OK. Months ago, but That's um, the format. That's good. But essentially, yeah. So utilitarians would say that. Um, I mean, their main, when it comes to understanding um, sort of like what it, what we should focus on in life, they would say that our goal in life is to maximize pleasure or happiness for as many people as possible and reduce suffering while simultaneously reducing suffering for as many people as possible. And so that's kind of like their golden rule. You know, an action is right as long as it maximizes happiness for the greatest amount of people and reduces suffering for the greatest amount of people. And that's how they make decisions about how to be really effective in their lives, how to be, um, how to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, and there's whole websites dedicated to actually helping utilitarians, like 80 hours, I think 80,000 hours or something, give well, like websites dedicated to helping utilitarians make moral decisions about how to be most effective in doing this. And when it comes to happiness, like utilitarians are not just saying like, happiness is the end all and be all of life because it is, they, they would just, they would say, so there, so it's not like what I want to say about, I want to give a really generous reading to utilitarians and say utilitarians are interested in happiness because they think that all human beings do everything that we do for the sake of happiness, whether we want to say it or not. They would say, uh-huh. even to a Christian, they would say, you say you're doing this thing because you want to follow Jesus, but probably at the end of the day, you want to be happy and you don't want to suffer. <laughs> that would be their argument. Um, and so, you know, you tell, and then um, when it comes, and that's the guiding principle. I mean, I would say that that undergirds the transhumanist movement. So they, the trans, many transhumanists have taken that utilitarian principle for how to live your life, a good moral life and said, yeah, actually, if more people did this, it would be good. And so they think that transhumanists think that technology is an incredible way to live out like the sort of golden rule, so to speak, of utilitarianism. Like if we want to maximize happiness for people and reduce suffering, technology gives us like a number of ways to do that. So why don't we use technology to improve people's lives? Um, And then Nietzsche, you know, he would say that um, I, I mean, so some transhumanists would say, yes, I love Nietzsche and I'm into him. Others would say, no, I, I don't, I, I don't agree with him. So this is not every transhumanist, but I say as someone who is reflecting on the transhumanist movement, that there is for me, a lot of Nietzschean influence on transhumanism. Um, Nietzsche is famous for saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
He's uninterested in pity or mercy when it comes to suffering. He would say Nietzsche, you know, is the kind of person who would critique and utilitarians, quite frankly, would would critique Mother Teresa and say, like, this is a good way if you're a Christian to understand where they're coming from. So they would look at Mother Teresa's life and say, you know, she didn't spend enough time trying to improve people's life or their health. Um, So all she did was witness to their pain um, or be with them in suffering. She wasn't really trying to actively or effectively reduce suffering. So she didn't live a very good life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. That would be a, that would be a, a good utilitarian read on mother Teresa's life. And then Nietzsche would say the same. He would say that when you pity other people in their suffering and you just uh, like simply focus your time on being merciful to them, you're not helping them to make meaning of their suffering or to overcome. He's interested Nietzsche in overcoming in looking at suffering and saying, you know, how do we make, like, how do we take the suffering that we have and, um, and go forward with it. That's what he was trying to do in his own life. Um, and so many transhumanists would, and, and also like sort of, so the influence here, and this is a critique I have of the transhumanist movement, you know, and a critique I have of Nietzsche. I like some things that Nietzsche says, even though he's the person who says God is dead, he says a lot of brilliant things. He's a brilliant, he was a brilliant philosopher and writer. Um, but, you know, Nietzsche was, he basically looked at the world and said, just like a utilitarian would say, everything you do, you do for the sake of happiness. Nietzsche would say there are strong people and there are weak people and the strong people are going to, they're going to win. So you might as well be a strong person. Like he looked at the world and said, you know, you're going to get stomped out. If you're the person walking around trying to give mercy to everybody and not trying to be an overcomer, like you're going to be stomped out. And so this is how the world, he's like newsflash. This is how the world works. Everybody wants power. So you better get yours. (laughs) And so with transhumanist, I think where that my critique is that some of that Nietzschean influence has definitely filtered into some transhumanist thought, which is that if someone is weak or frail, that maybe their life isn't worth living. And so when you think about people with significant disabilities or differing abilities, um, there would be very little room. I mean, many transhumanists might say like, well, their life isn't worth living if they have these significant, severe disabilities. And I think as, as a Christian, I would say otherwise. So and yeah. I, don't, I don't think I know as a Christian, I would say otherwise. So what well, would you allow me to, uh, to hold the position of Christian Nietzsche? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that would it. be my mine uh, vein. It wouldn't be utilitarian so much, and of course, I reject the uh, the bad uh, logical conclusions of of a, a pure Nietzschean philosophy. But it still seems to me that over, and I think this is how it maybe connects to your book and joy and everything like that is to really look at suffering in a more complicated way. Uh, you know, there's a quote from a, a guest we've had on here. Uh, Alan, Agnes Callard, and she says that, uh, let's see, I wrote it down, I always say it wrong whenever I say it, but she says that pain that you can tolerate is almost not pain at all, but pain you can't accept, you call suffering. And so some of these utilitarian approaches and stuff really feel to me like it's just to make some superficial version of happiness and eliminate all pain. And I don't see that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Pain is 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 very important thing and it's not bad it, it, suffering i think is bad but i just don't think pain is nec- is inherently bad i really 
don't. Well, well, so there's the, a lot to discover and think about there that makes me really want to figure out how to thread all, all those needles. It might not be it, possible. It, it's funny that you're bringing up Nietzsche. I was thinking, like, if he was today saying these things today, it would be very toxic masculinity, I think. I think he would be considered a very toxic ma- well, masculine person that would be dangerous. Like, I mean, only the strong survive in a sense. And, and But also, we live in a time where our feelings are maybe the most truth. Like our, our personal feelings of how we feel with this hurts. This is my this is my pain. This is my suffering are of, of the most value more than overcoming even maybe. Right. So so I wonder how that when you when you talk about the transhumanist movement, how do we get from because I mean, right now, feelings are I feel this way and it is valid and my truth. And so I, I wonder how that truth resonates or or, or how, how does that how do we move into transhumanism when it means something like the utilitarian transhumanism you're talking about, where you overcome, you work hard, uh, pain is just a part of the deal. Do we really want to eliminate pain? Is that no? I I think we do right now in this moment. Yeah, we yeah don't, exactly. But I don't think that that's good. I'm, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it feels like even with Jesus's story, it felt very painful, right? Like the the point of it was that it was going to be a lot of pain and suffering. And that leads to enlightenment, forgiveness, true self, all of that stuff. I don't know. Am I, am I way off? Way off here. Uh, Angel, I think this will connect all? to the book from here. But yeah, yeah, I would love your reaction to that, and 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 curious how you see the whole all these movements as a you know reverend and spiritual per- Christian you know thinker. Um, yeah, I, so I wrote this book after hearing my friend, Willie James Jennings, who I quote in the book a couple times, give a lecture at Yale. Um, so I worked at Yale for three and a half years on the theology of joy and the good life project. And part of like, basically the, the culmination of that project was this large conference and Willie gave this talk and he, um, he says in the talk that we can make our pain productive without glorifying or justifying suffering. For me, that is the reason why I wrote The Gravity of Joy. Um, I literally sat down. I'd already started to write out just like some of my experiences for myself, but I actually began to think about writing it as a book a couple of weeks after he gave this talk. And I just felt like, you know, and so that is actually a sort of Nietzschean idea. I think making pain productive, that is where I can, you know, um, I can get on board with Nietzsche about that is to say, you know, okay, this is already, and, and also it's a very Buddhist idea to say that like suffering is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much like that we're focused on, you know, um, always trying. I mean, we certainly, I think Buddhists would even say we can reduce suffering, you know, by detaching ourselves from our desires and we should try to do that. And there's many altruistic Buddhists today. I mean, there are some Buddhists that like, you know, are definitely all about meditating and like very navel gazing, like looking inward, but many Buddhists today that are quite altruistic, radically altruistic, and that are trying to reduce suffering in the world through uh, numerous ways. Um, so, but, and, and so for me, it's like, how do we hold, I, I want to hold intention, this idea of, I think it is our responsibility as human beings to inflict as little suffering on each other as possible. Like, I don't think we want to cause each other to suffer. And when we have an opportunity to reduce suffering, I want to participate in that. At the same time, I recognize that there is like, there's something about pain that can teach us. But I say in the book, and I think it's important, and it gets at what you were just saying a moment ago, Toby, about feelings. 
Um, I do think a lot of people are, are more open today to talking about feelings and sharing their feelings and allowing that to be part of what, um, what guides them. But I don't know that we've learned very much. And I talk about this in, in the gravity of joy about like how to make, um, how to express our feelings, um, in constructive ways. Yeah. I think we need more conversation, more formation around how do I express righteous anger in constructive ways? How do I express my lament, my fear in constructive ways? How do I allow my feelings to be wisdom teachers for me that actually you give me a sense of like that teach me something. Mm-hmm. And the same thing about pain, like this book is about how do I allow my pain to teach me something about God, about the world, about other people that, um, that matters going forward. I mean, I wrote this book because I want to create more conversation and get more people to join the groundswell of people who are addressing suicide rates and addiction rates in the United States, you know, and so that's a way of making my own family's pain productive. Um, but at the same time, yeah. And so, and I do think there's a distinction between allowing pain to be a teacher or allowing, you know, and trying to find the wisdom and like make our pain productive or allowing feelings to be wisdom teachers for us and allowing despair to be a teacher. I'm very, um, like I say directly in the gravity of joy that despair is an awful teacher. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so because it, it feed and it feeds off of our pain that is unaddressed. That is, you know, that when we try to numb our pain, ignore our pain, escape our pain or transfer our pain to other people, it can, we can succumb to despair and feel like, oh, there's no meaning in the world. There's no truth in the world. There's no goodness in the world. And the moment that we allow despair to be a teacher, um, then that's, that's where it can, it's pretty immediate and severe. Like it needs to be that. I mean, that's where things can go really, really badly. Well, so as a Christian, do you is it your hope long term and infinitely or after life or fixing this life or or wherever on that spectrum but but w- is it to to achieve no pain though it, you know i can see i can see where that almost is like the idea of heaven is a place where there's no pain i understand that but that's almost a cartoon in a way that depiction of heaven is hard to reconcile if you think about it without pain exactly but and then that is almost a hedonistic type of pursuit that just no pain like it's uh, you know the pain wouldn't be here it's not here by design basically yeah no i mean i think that love requires suffering all all love like you you cannot i mean especially i mean just to love is to be open to pain. So to not, to say like, I'm not going to be interested in pain anymore means like you can't also, you also have to give up on love because mm-hmm. <laughs> love at the end okay. of the day is all, I think always creates space for pain um, because we are fallible human beings. You know, we, we make mistakes, we hurt each other. There's distance. We die. We lose each other. Things change um, to love is to be open to pain. Mm. That's good. And the despair thing is huge too. Even on a micro scale, it doesn't teach you anything. Like once you enter pain past a point that you can handle or deal with, you then have to like become numb to that or deal with that in some way. I just took my daughter skiing and she, we got on a a challenging spot and she fell down and then this and that, and then she's kind of crying. And I'm thinking if I push her past this moment at all, or if she doesn't get through this moment on her own, we might go home. She might not want to come back. Right. Yeah. And, but she did, you know, she, th- it was pain. 
she got through it and she figured it out. And then she wants an, another challenge and another challenge and a more aggressive, you know, she wants to do more after that. So it taught her, but it could have gone the other way. And if she re- would have hit, and this is a silly analogy compared to the real despair that is in the world, but, you know, you could be closed off to that whole idea of moving in, making any progress. If But if the, you, but the you bigger, know. bigger story there is that she had a guide in a way with despair. Mm-hmm. It seems really lonely. Like yeah, it, it exactly. feels like a wasteland that you can't get out of and you are alone. And so yeah. you have to make the decisions of how to get out of it. And it's all on you. So the weight of everything is on you on that moment. Like uh, the father to a child, uh, which is a, a great example of God to us, Jesus to us. Uh, it seems like the best part about Jesus is there's somebody that's like, hey, you're okay. I'm Keep here with you. Through this Keep pain. going. It's yeah. going to hurt. Yeah. The, you know, the valley of the shadow of, the de- of death or, you know, whatever you're going through, like, it, just keep going. I'll be here with you. It will feel lonely sometimes. It'll feel tough sometimes. But, um, and, and I want even to get back to uh, the gravity of joy. Um, you were talking about suicide earlier. And um, so we've done a few episodes on suicide on this podcast. They're always the least listened to. By far, like they're the lowest, you know, least amount of listeners. Somebody finds out we're talking about suicide. Nah, I'm out of here. You know, people really uh, try to stay away from saying that someone died of, by suicide. Um, and also, I think we don't think about it until it hits home. And so that's what was fascinating about uh, reading about your book was how you started. You were working. Uh, you said you joined the Theology of Joy and Good Life Project at Yale, which it seems like, wow, I mean, that's all about joy and good living, and then out, out of nowhere, it seems like suicide hit you, and it, that probably hadn't been a part of your life until that point, right? No, no, it hadn't. And so when that happened, you were at, I mean, it seems like, I mean, being at Yale seems like that would have been career pinnacle goals, uh, part of your life. Like you were, were, were you at like, uh, were you kind of at like a mountaintop, and then all of a sudden this brought you down? Yeah, I mean, I, um, so I, I had just gotten a PhD um, and it took me, you know, five years of blood, sweat and tears. And so I get the job offer at Yale two months before I finish my PhD to go be on this research team. And my job is going to be to read and study about and think about joy and visions of the good life, human flourishing for three and a half years. And I'm like, this is not just the good life. This is the high life. Like I'm going to go enjoy I'm going to go enjoy my life as an Ivy League scholar and just, you know, and I think, yeah, I, I can't, it was, I was so humbled when I was called and I, I just, I never, ever, I'm, I didn't go to an Ivy League institution. So it's crazy to me that I became a professor and a researcher at Yale because that just was never even in my like yeah. realm of possibility or imagination, you know, and it just like all the stars aligned, a lot of luck, a lot of just network stuff. It was crazy how it worked out, but um, ended up on the team and just for the first eight months, just every single day went to work. So stoked every single day, just reading all I could about joy, you know, connecting with scholars, being a part of the project and this and that preparing to teach life worth living, which is the class that I taught at Yale with undergrads. And uh, four weeks before I started teaching life worth living, um, you know, got the call in the parking lot of church, like, ironically enough. So I was at church because we went to church and then we were uh, went caroling in, a, in some nursing homes because it was Christmas and we went with a bunch of high schoolers. Um, 
walked out. Well, I mean, walked in, I left my car, my uh, self, my smartphone, like in my car, um, the whole day just to kind of be present to what was happening with young people and, you know, in church and stuff. And when I went and I got the, I, got, I remember like it was yesterday, but like got my, my phone off the floorboard of the car and looked and it was like seven missed calls from my mom. And I was like, Oh shit, like what is going on? Right. And I, then I just opened her text. I saw a text from her and I think in her panic state, she didn't think much about like this text being what it was, but um, yeah, she texted, you know, Dustin killed himself. Um, wow. And I, yeah, just, it, it was like, literally I, everything went blurry. Yeah. I, Cause we had just been talking, we should, we talked right before church. I called her and we were talking about, cause it was going to be, it was Christmas one week later, one week before Christmas exactly. And on Friday night, this was Sunday morning, we were going to meet at my sister Jenna's house and all celebrate together like a bunch of the extended family, we're all going to get together. And we were talking about it that morning. And um, (laughs) so it was just like, and then a few hours later, everything changed forever. You know what I mean? Like literally our family will never be the same ever. Mm -hmm. And so it's so many things that I can't even go into, but like I walked away from my car and called her immediately. And I'm just like pacing in the parking lot. And I just literally remember calling her and being like, no, like I was screaming, like, I don't, it's crazy, but it's like, that's what I was. I was like, no, 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 no. And she's like, yeah, he did like, yes. And she's crying. And I dropped my cell phone on the pavement. And I was just like, nothing, no sentence has ever, ever rocked me the way that that one did. Um, And that's the thing, like anyone, you know, but over time, I think more and more, like, as I tell my story, I meet people all the time. Like I met someone, I preached at a church on Sunday and like someone reached out to me who had just lost a friend to suicide five weeks ago. And it's important, even though it's an often, like I say in the gravity of joy, like the often whispered S word, it's like, you know, like we're like really like quiet about it. Um, and in the last four years before the pandemic, um, suicide rates among 10 to 30 year olds raised by 56%. Even just a few weeks ago at a Nevada high school, 17 high schoolers took their lives at one school. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's hard to, hard to get a grip on how tragic that is, but also the lack of, I guess, coverage of it. I mean, I know that's very complicated, but you know what I mean? That's if 17, kids died at a school from an accidental anything else anything else any and not to mention if there was intentional violence or gun involved in a single death you know what what how much coverage that would get and then to have zero understanding really i mean when i hear that I have zero understanding of why. Like, what was their pain? What was their, you know, like, what was you their despair? Anything from like, like, it. You're right. You don't. You don't actually. It. You do not get any data or yeah. information about it. It's just right, they did this. That so you just assume life was really bad. You don't know what it was, or you know, I mean, but it, it's so heavy, and you cannot really talk about it openly because it, it is. It, I mean, it's really. Tricky. I mean, you're not you allowed to be curious about it. Is the way I would say that. Right. You just just don't be. Well, it could the, be disrespectful. It could be hurtful. Yeah, for lots the, of fa- the family. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the family. Often, like with with your situation, Angela. I mean, y'all y'all you didn't see this coming. 
obviously with your reaction, right? Like, I mean, you didn't, I mean, was there, I mean, and so at that point, then you just have to get back to work or what? Like, that's the thing that's really tough, right? Well, and then you have to like talk about, I mean, you have to figure out the funeral and like, what do we say and how do we celebrate this person's life while recognizing everyone's heart is broken. That's coming to this place. You know what I mean? So just all this stuff. But I think that a couple things that I've learned about suicide that have really helped me in the last few years are one that, you know, really at the end of the day, I think that like that people who die by suicide are doing so because they think it's the only way to find relief from their pain. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important for guys like you all, for, you know, people who have like a mic to be able to say to people, hey, we do have to find ways to make our pain productive or find meaning in it or to overcome it so that we don't transfer it, ignore it, numb it and everything like that. Because if we don't deal with it, like it finds us, like it will find right. us. You have to actually deal with it. You have to learn how to lament in your life, how to talk openly with other people about what you're going through, how to let people yeah. in how to work through this stuff, you know, because if you can't make sense of your pain or do, do something productive with it, like it, it will, it, it will eventually find you. So I think they're looking for relief. And then at the end of the day, Thomas Jorner says in his book, uh, why people die by suicide, that there are three things that happen when somebody d- decides to, you know, one that come together, one is one, we can't change, which is they've developed the capacity over time to harm themselves. Um, and that happens through a myriad of ways, like through abuse or neglect, through all like self-harm or um, extreme practices, like just like edgy stuff that we can do anyways. But we can't change how someone's history is. But the other two things we can impact. And that is the second thing that comes into play is a sense of profound loneliness, which the pandemic has definitely nurtured in so many people's lives. And the other is like the sense that you're, you have your life has become ineffective or a burden on other people, which we can also impact. And so, you know, that's what, I mean, the sort of call, one of the calls of like the gravity of joy is it's the the power of joy, which for me is the feeling that we get when we recognize and feel connected to meaning, to truth, to beauty, to goodness, or to each other. And so we can actually, I think in, you know, in, in being people who are ready for joy in being people who are leaders of communities where we teach people how to be ready for joy, what we're doing is saying, why don't we look for meaning? Why don't we celebrate truth? Why don't we get in the way of beauty? Why don't we talk about goodness? Why don't we celebrate with one another? And why don't we really try to nurture relationships with each other? I mean, it sounds so like trite probably in the face of suicide rates or addiction rates, but like, this is the good stuff. You know what I mean? Like joy literally is a counter agent to despair. You were in your book, you talk about two addiction, like with your father. So after, uh, your cousin's death, then your father went through that too. And I, and I think that's a whole other issue that we are facing now that, that it just seems like it just kind of gets pushed under the rug a little bit or swept under the rug, um, like opioid death. And the, the like your father was in pain and then opioids cause more pain in a sense, right? Like, I mean, and then once again, you're back to dealing with this, like you're trying to study about joy and it's the same. It probably just felt like at that moment, what were you thinking? Like, I mean, you just had gone through one death and then not too long after your father's death. And then you're trying to study joy, but you're getting hit probably the hardest you've been in your life. Right. 
What was right, that like? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, two weeks after Dustin's death, my nephew died at 22 of sudden cardiac arrest. And then I, so I, I helped my sister, oldest sister, write his obituary, went and spent time with her, um, got back on a Sunday night and Tuesday night I was texted. I was messaged that my dad was dying in the ER after 12 years of opioid use. Mm. And so I get on a plane on three planes and a rental car two days later. And so like basically five days after my nephew's funeral was my dad's funeral. Yeah. So three deaths of three family members spoke at all their funerals, um, in four weeks. And then, you know, my job was to teach life worth living and to study joy. And (laughs) for the next year, for the next year and a half, like year and four months or whatever, it was a lot of like walking around in the fog of grief. And I'm very open about that, honest about that in the gravity of joy. Cause I think it's important for people to be able to, uh, to say, you know, cause that's the thing. I don't want people to think that it's like, I was studying joy, these really crappy things happen. And then like, I wrote about joy, boom, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like right. literally it, there was a year and four months of profound grief and lament, a lot of anger, a lot of fear. And I had to get therapy for it. You know, I did six months of therapy and it really, you know, it wasn't until I, I heard Willie's talk and what was crazy is like right after it's like six weeks before I heard Willie's talk, I became a chaplain at a maximum security women's prison. And the, the gravity of joy talks about that as well. And basically this, this, these, this group of women became like a healing community in my life because it gave me a place to honestly address these feelings that I had that were really what I would have termed in back in the day, like bad or dark emotions. It helped me to realize, no, these are actually places of wisdom in me and I can learn from these. Um, but also it just, um, yeah. So in, I realized a few weeks into it, into being a chaplain at this prison that I was the chaplain for women on suicide watch. And also that I was like that the overwhelming majority of the women in, in the Bible study that I was leading um, were in prison for heroin or crack, like some sort of crime related to heroin or crack or, or both. And so all of a sudden, it, it, like the clouds opened up and I realized, oh, wow, my research on joy, my faith and doubt, my family's weeks of hell and these women's lives like have collided in this prison. And I decided to try to figure out what does that mean? What is it? And what does it mean? Of like, what does it say about the larger sort of story that we're living out in American culture? Um, why are so many people dying by suicide? Why are so many people um, a part of the opioid narrative? Um, what's going on here? Yeah, well, we seem to have all those things so in the category of unspeakable, like, you know, any myth of any grand, you know, cult, like, like, group of people whatever it is there's stuff you have to just kind of sweep under the rug and the prisons are that you know our institutions that hold people who are mentally not well our addiction people the opioids that and then suicides are that and that's all in some sense one population yeah like add in, add in the homeless too yeah right <laughs> those i mean those populations are all that's all one you know spectrum of population it seems oh, to be to that, avoid that of course like, of course yeah. crosses any other boundaries. I mean, that, that's a, that's like a group that doesn't get identified or spoken of as a, as a group in a way as people that are in despair. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And what I realized was that, you know, 
if our our research on joy, if our conversations about joy and the good life did not, could not, were not for these women in prison, like then they were too, it was too shallow what we were doing. Um, and so I was like, okay, what does, what does our, what does joy have to say to these women, to all of the unspoken things that are happening in America today? Um, and if joy can speak to those things then it can like speak to any of us, you know? Yeah. Do the people in despair, if somebody comes to talk to them about joy, don't, I mean, don't that, doesn't that piss them off? Don't they resist that? You know what I mean? Like you, somebody, if you're in the darkest place, you don't want somebody to come talk to you about happiness and joy, even in a way, like how, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Joy so can I, be offensive and disrespectful. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what, yeah, I, see, yeah. Maybe well, I'm I mean, that wrong, it feels but. that way. Happiness can, I think happiness and joy are different. I, I say that I think happiness is, um, so happiness only is like recent coinage in, Amer in, in English, right? So it was used in the 1800s. It started to be widely used in the English language in, in the 1800s as an assessment or in a calculus of material conditions. In general, when people say that they're happy, what they mean is that they're looking at the conditions of their lives, the circumstances that they have, and they are happy with them. They are content with how things are going. They like their lives. Joy is uh, circumstance agnostic. Joy is does not it can joy can be felt by us when things are going really well and when things are going terribly, because joy, as I was saying a few minutes ago, is the recognition of and the connection we feel to what is good, truthful, meaningful, beautiful, and to each other. These sorts of things are the things that sustain us in suffering. Like when I realize that there is still good in the world, even though I'm suffering and I recognize it and I actually feel like it has something to do with my life, that sustains me in the midst of pain or grief. Do you and have so to have enough joy in the bank to make it through suffering then? Is that? No, I'm not. No, I'm saying that you try to, it's about the posture. It's about opening your hands, being open, postured for, ready for, for joy, recognizing that, and that's the thing, joy is a gift. It finds us. And like, so that, that it, there's not, I would say that there isn't there, there are, so there's like the feeling of joy, which is a gift, but then there is the, an action of rejoicing, which is a choice that we can make. And I think for the women in prison, when they realized that joy, I mean, so this is the other thing that Willie said that I've really taken on in my own work is joy is a work of resistance against despair. Mm-hmm. When the women in prison realize that gives them agency in the midst of their suffering. So joy, I think, is about both agency in the midst of suffering and also the gift of like, if I remain open in my life, it can find me. Th those things give us hope in the midst of difficult things. And that gets you close I, to that v Victor Frankl territory then at yeah. that point of talking about having retaining agency no, ma no matter what kind of a thing. Which Absolutely. puts you back in that place of, of, you know, embracing a pain or something like that, though, mm -hmm. is, is it puts you right back into where you have to do, do resistance uh, to despair is in itself difficult and painful, but you can choose it at least. Yeah, you can choose to look for good things in the world, for beautiful things like and for meaning and like say, I'm going to, you know, celebrate this. I'm going to do what I can. And like, you know, and I found it with, I mean, the women in prison, I tell some really incredible stories of them 
resisting despair in that, like in that room on Wednesday nights and also throughout the week, like stories that they would share on Wednesday nights of just how they humanized each other in really dehumanizing conditions. Like these women were much like Victor Frankel, like just like he was in the camp, like what he was doing to make his life still feel like it was worth living to keep going ahead, one step ahead. You know, these women did the same thing in prison. Like, and, and it made all the difference for them. It's what helped them to survive, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the questions I want to ask you is with joy, how do you deal with your anger? Cause you were saying, uh, you were talking about being in grief and anger. And I wrote this question out. I said, uh, is it, I've always, I did not feel this way. I grew up very small church, charismatic in the middle of nowhere, country church, right? Very fundamentalist. God hated you. Everyone was going to hell, but our church, and we might even be going to hell. Uh, and I later, as my faith evolved and I got out of that system, um, started feeling more comfortable with spending time being mad at God. I, I, I did a, a, I volunteered at a, an old folks home is what I call it, I guess a nursing home. But, um, and one of the ladies there, I'd go visit her and she was, I mean, she was late eighties and she, I said, how are you doing today? And she would go, well, uh, I got into an argument with God and I was really mad at him, but, uh, we worked things out and she'd say that several times. And I was like, you know, that's kind of neat. Like she's, cause you have arguments with people, like with people that you care about, you get into arguments with them. You'd have disagreements. And I was like, to not have a disagreement with God and to not, see what he's doing and be mad about it, you know, not, not fully understanding what he's doing and to be mad about it seems like it could be okay. And I was wondering is, what do you think about the idea of, uh, that anger? Is that anger at God? Uh, are there times where I need to forgive God? Like I'm holding something against and I go, I forgive you. Or I, how do you release that anger in comparison to finding that joy? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think it's very important to work through our righteous anger in constructive ways. Like I was saying a little bit ago, and I think that the Psalms are a great example of that. Um, I think there were also times that Jesus got angry at unjust systems. You know, when he turned the flipped the tables at the temple, it's because he thought it was an unjust system that had been set up against, you know, and was oppressing people. Um, he also got angry when he like, I think there's a moment where he like looks and like, He's like angry that their hearts have turned like cold, that they're stone. You know what I mean? Like he's, and so um, I think we can be angry with other people. We can be angry with systems. We can be angry at God, with God for allowing particular things. Um, Absolutely. I think this is a very human thing that helps us to realize, wait, something's wrong. I mean, anger basically is telling us that something is wrong. And so we have to pay attention and ask like, what's wrong here? Is it a system? Is it like the way like that I'm being treated? Is it that I feel like that God has allowed this thing that God shouldn't have allowed, you know? And so certainly I think like, you know, so for me, I like the Psalms because it is like, it's both lament and expressing anger, often fear, those sorts of things in a really profound way. Like the the Psalmist, like when we look at the Psalms, what we see is that they're like, this is what I'm upset about. (laughs) Yeah. This is what I'm upset about. And I'm upset about this thing too, and this thing too. And where are you, God? And there's questions and there's confusion. And like it's just listed out. And then, and then oftentimes, as they list these things out, something else happens in them where they're able to, as they release fear, lament, frustration, then it creates this space. I feel like it's almost like I see it in every single song, like that the spirit of God begins to say to them, like, I see you, 
I hear you and I am with you. Like you are not alone in this. And like what I say in the gravity of joy, it's about God's witness and God's witness. Like I'm a witness to your pain. I'm with you in it. Um, and also you won't always feel this way. (laughs) And I feel like that that's, you know, and as we release things and recognize for me, God's witness and witness that creates space in my heart for joy, because I'm like, okay, it's a sobering joy. It's a bright sorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a healing joy. Would it be an oversimplification to say that uh, fear and anger in that way are things to process, not avoid, and that joy may lie on the other side of doing that processing? Yes. That's a, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of our – a lot of the th- avoidance seems to be the real – that that's a thing you do more in a lonely way or suppress or repress – I mean, even when you say love and pain are tied, like Toby being mad at God or people being mad at God, if you weren't ever mad at God, then something would be weird. It would just be weird. Like if you had a kid that said, if you asked a 17-year-old, have you ever been mad at your parents? And they said, oh, never. Right. That'd be super weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Would, I mean, and probably every time it. they you were mad. Trust it, that. Yeah, and maybe every time they were mad at their parents, it was their fault or they misunderstood, but that would right. be to be expected. But to act like... You didn't have that or deal with it would be either weird or dishonest or inauthentic or avoidance or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's all often it's interesting, like probably the instances of the most like the most profound instances of joy to me in the Bible are in Luke 15, which is like the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost, quote unquote, son um, the prodigal son story. And so Luke 15, like all these things are lost. And then when they're found, there's rejoicing, there's joy. Um, and so oftentimes joy follows disunion, joy follows loss, joy follows, you know, it, like, so often joy is, and I love joy because it's like, you can, you can modify it in all these ways. Like I've said, sobering joy, healing joy, there's exuberant joy, you know, but also in Luke 15, what we see is like, there's a, re- there's a like redemptive joy. Restored. Like yeah. yeah. You call those That's flavors. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, you use joy the word, cocktails. I like it. One of, yeah. the things stu- yeah, one of the things that stuck out to me, you used the, the term hard one, uh, hard one joy. Like it, it wasn't like joy just isn't a given. Like we don't just get it. Like it's something that we do need to uh, seek after and find and go through some of the, the tougher parts of life, like you said, um, to, to get to the understanding of what joy actually is. Cause you're right. Like, I mean, we, I don't, oftentimes I don't think we understand what joy is. It, we feel that joy just feels good, but there, there's, there's a lot more to joy, a lot more versions of it that, that I think are really valuable, mm-hmm. um, and, and meaningful. And it's not just, Oh, I should just be happy. That's not what joy is. Just being happy isn't isn't what that is. Um, well, this has been great. I got one last question for you, and this is I hope you take this the right way because I think that you are really cool. And just reading up about you, I mean, you look cool, you dress cool, you're super smart, all this stuff, and you are a Mennonite. <laughs> you're about did to men- offend me. I just <laughs> I love it because I love it. You're like I'm going to say yeah. all these nice things, and yeah. I'm going to offend you. Yeah, but so. you're you're a Mennonite, and I'm I don't know, hardly know anything about Mennonites. And now did Mennonites get an upgrade? Like I mean, you're this is awesome. Like I I, I mean, you might be converting me here. I, what, what's up with Mennonites these days? I mean, this is uh, awesome. 
you know, I don't know that I'm like the poster child for Mennonite. <laughs> Especially is, in Lancaster. Yale. Yale's loaded want, with Mennonites. I, well, I want you to be. I want you to be because you'll win me over. No, if you go to Lancaster or, you know, uh, Goshen, Indiana, they're probably going to look at me and be like, I don't think he's very Mennonite. Um, but here's the thing. I'm very Mennonite in some ways. So when I was 25 years old, I was at seminary. So I was a master of divinity student at Fuller Seminary. And I was trying to figure out like, what, what denomination do I want to be ordained into? Um, And actually a Presbyterian church sent me to seminary. So it's kind of funny because they were paying for the first couple of years of seminary for me, or at least portions of it. Um, Sorry, sorry to this Presbyterian (laughs) church. But, um, and then, so they sent me to seminary and I started learning more about other denominations. I grew up Southern Baptist but they don't affirm women in ministry and then many other things that I find problematic today. So, um, or critical race theory, for example, <laughs> but anyways, right. that, that's a, over there. So um, I was searching um, probably between like 18 and 25, a lot of just like, what denomination do I get ordained into? Um, and, uh, and I came, I started to learn about the Anabaptist tradition, um, basically in my, a church history class. And then I, I met someone who was Mennonite And basically, I was just incredibly drawn to their rich heritage of one peace building, a commitment to active nonviolent resistance, um, which is probably a whole other hour conversation. But basically, um, just this rich, beautiful tradition of peace building that goes back to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. And then second. Internet glitch here. We'll see if that works out. Um teachings and that becomes the glasses with which we read all of scripture which helps us to understand the old testament and the prophecies and this and that so i loved this idea of like yes jesus becomes the guide for reading the rest of the text and then i love their commitment to simplicity i'm not great at following it but uh simplicity and community <laughs> um and so it just there's these the, the, the very rich ideals that for me when i look at christianity i'm like oh that's the heart of it for me yeah i, I can see that i uh we'd love to have you back on uh your other book practicing faith in a new media landscape sounds like that you're right we need a whole nother hour yeah, to talk about that. all that so We'd love to have you back. Uh, Reverend Dr. Angela Gorell. Uh, my last name is Morell, by the way, so I like it that somebody else is spe- – two R's, two L's. That's what I've always said. I'm Morell. I always have to yeah. say the same thing. It's the exact same thing. That's what I've always do said. Do people Morell? Do they say that to you? Like, Morell. Oh, yes. Yep. Morell. <laughs> All the time. Goral. Is that what you <laughs> – Yes. That's what I get. So my students call me Dr. G. Because oh, okay. like some of them get all frustrated about like Gorel and they get nervous and I'm like just call me Doctor G. It's fine. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, the uh, so the Gravity of Joy it's out March 9th, right? Yeah, I mean actually people who ordered it on Amazon got it a couple days ago. So awesome. I um, mean it technically comes out on Tuesday, but on March 9th. Um, but but I think if you order it, you'll get it right away. So. All right. Well, we really awesome. appreciate your time. This was great, and yeah, we'd love to have you back. This was awesome. Yeah, I would love to come back. And I'll send you all always on. If you send me, email me your address, I'll send it to you. That'd be great. See you, Dr. G. Bye. Bye. (laughs) All right, man. I'm just yeah. telling you, I, I mean, maybe I'm going to look into Mennonites. Well, the Baptists mean, really screwed up. They could have had her. Oh, I know. They don't the, affirm the women. Pre- Presbyterians. Then, yeah. Now, the Mennonites, though, w- still men and nights? Why right. is it not women and nights then? I know, women and nights. <laughs>
If they have, I mean, if they're so we're progressive. Mennonites. I mean, if they're so progressive, I don't really get well, it. You're right. I didn't even think about that. We're Mennonites. Yeah. I'm a, I don't know if I can dress they've been, them anymore. They've been ordaining women forever. I mean, come on. Good Lord. Well, Mennonites. But Sorry, Baptists. Yeah, Baptists just blew You it. miss I mean, out. I guess Presbyterian Mennonites, several of them called on quick to that you got to have women preaching. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that it, it well, almost I, seems. I, the Presbyterian, I think, might still be split on the USA and PCA on that type of thing. Yeah. But it, the it Presbyterian fun- USA is the more liberal mainline Right. And the PCA is more conservative. It was that. funny last night. Most of the time we have religious talk or uh, talks about God, I guess I would say. I wouldn't, not religious. Um, around the dinner table. And we'll just get to talking about something with my family, you know. And uh, so we were talking about God. And I said, he, I said, but, you know, maybe it could be a she. I said, you know what? Honestly, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't know if it's either. He or she doesn't, uh, you know, maybe it is really more like creator or God or Craig Gross now saying the source, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but, uh, and my kids, just because the, the churches that we've been to were like, well, it's a, he, that they, 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 they said that. Right. Yeah. And I was like, well, I said, yeah, but girls, I said, I mean, it says we're creating God's image. And I said, so what, if we're all creating God's image, what, what, what does that mean with like our penises and our vaginas? The, like, I the, mean, is that, is that, is there's only one or what is that? I said, we, I think we just don't know. I think God is God. And he's he's for all of us. So I mean, it, it doesn't matter necessarily what we are calling God. the The bigger point there would be connection with God. Understand? I mean, if God is a woman and you can learn from God and grow and be a better human, that can't be a, a sticking point that we yeah. have to really I think get. That go, whole debate is going to make on. less and less sense over time. Whether like oh, as if you're going to find out it's one or the other or something. Right? Anatomical. He was, all, he was always a he. You what see? are we talking about? I mean, we're more likely moving towards a less gendered society in general. In which case, people right. won't even it just won't come up in the you know event. Yeah, and that's uh, now keep in mind the trans movement that exists now might just be the first step toward where those uh you know uniform asexual aliens that you see in the future like big heads desexualized oh, right. yeah, yeah. you know that might just be the long-term track we're on and stuff that like might that might be what matter. humans look like yeah humans yeah we're just digital like interfacing brains, body. aliens at some point that are less yeah. hairy uh viking men and types of you know it's, it'd right. be less it's just oh god can you, know you imagine what I'm yeah can you imagine thinking back to viking men <laughs> just, oh why did you need all that they'll yeah. they'll seem weak yeah yeah gross. right they'll seem like oh god what was that it's disgusting Ugh. that's like licking the bathroom floor like gender balls and vagina Ugh, and all this all that stuff is, is less Sick. we're just moving away from all that stuff Ah, get get that away from me. I don't want any of that. Emphasize until we look like the, you know, aliens do. It's it, not that important. That is crazy to think about, though. Like future humans, that's my transhumanist self uh, talking though. Vagina and penis and balls won't matter. And, They'll matter less. But but <laughs> you know, but it's been. Uh, Supreme to my life. <laughs> well, it's it's mattered a lot in the past, but we're at I mean, that hinge me, point to de-emphasize. To me, it's been everything. You know, genitals. Yeah, I know. Genitals I mean, have been a been big part of my everything. life. Everything. It, it has infiltrated every I part know. of my life. How much of your it, human yeah. brain that's this right. unbelievable machine have you devoted to focusing on genitals? A lot. Oh, God. Right. But not right. not to any hugely beneficial effect. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you, your brain will eventually get utilized less on yeah. genital focus. <laughs> right. I hope so. I hope so. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we're just, it's like we're cavemen or something, right? Like, we just yeah. think, 
you know, well, this, yeah. whatever we're doing now. So hopefully, I mean, but there'll be a whole new set of problems with those oh, big yeah, brains. Oh, yeah, way worse problems. I mean, <laughs> <Way that'll... worse>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, check out Gravity of Joy, Dr. Angela Gurrell. Uh, um, uh, that was just great. I really enjoyed that. That'd be uh, great. Matt, you, uh, join the BC Club if you haven't. Yep. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on there. Join and, Emory Land, uh, too. We got the Emory Land. Weeks End if you want to come see that. That's right. All right. So, see y'all. See you. See you.